Welcome to our study of Philippians here on the Radio Bible Course. We begin the final chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. The first word in chapter 4 is, therefore. Listen to the text. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. The first word, therefore, is a word which refers back to what has just been written, especially verse 20 and 21 of chapter 3, where Paul said, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself, Paul had written about people who were enemies of the cross of Christ. Then he referred to true believers in verse 20, pointing their attention to a heavenly destiny connected to the appearing of Christ and also to the transformation of their bodies. Because of that stupendous future glorification, Paul makes the appeal in verse 1, Therefore, well, he says, Stand firm. Stand firm in what? Well, here, and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8, they are told to stand fast in the Lord, meaning being submitted to his authority and his ultimate victory. The Philippians had encountered opposition. They bore persecution and faced relentless pressure from the legalists. But he writes, stand firm. Notice the tender words in verse 1. My beloved brethren, these people were especially dear to him, and these words, whom I long to see. Paul yearned for their company. He also calls them my joy and my crown. How could they be Paul's crown? There are two Greek words for crown. Diadema, which is used in the book of Revelation. The other word is Stephanos, and that's found here in Philippians 4.1. Now, diadema is always used to symbolize royalty or imperial rule. But our word Stephanos, translated crown also in verse 1 here, stands for reward and glory. Now, look how Paul used the word in his epistle to the Thessalonians. He said, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Well, that helps us to understand why he called them his crown. This Stephanus crown for Paul was the kind of reward given to the winner of a race. These believers in Philippi are the crown he rejoiced in. 
And I'm sure there are Christian workers today who take such delight in people who have believed the gospel through them and are proceeding on, standing firm in the faith and reaching other people in turn. They are your crown. The Radio Bible Chorus, for about five years, has been conducting an evangelism training program. And over those years, our trainees have experienced the exhilaration of seeing many men and women trust in Jesus Christ. And those new believers are like their crown of rejoicing. Jesus said in Luke chapter 15, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But there is also joy down here. And Paul knew that joy. But he also knew grief. And verse 2 reflects one such case. Listen to it again. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help those women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These were two women in Philippi who had been of great help to the Apostle Paul. But now there's a problem. These two women apparently weren't speaking to one another anymore. We don't know what the problem was. But notice his repetition of the words, I urge. Now each is personally addressed. I urge Euodius. I urge Syntyche. Which one was the guilty party? That's not important. Paul neither takes sides, nor does he try to place blame on either of these women. His objective is more important, and his objective is unity, not chastisement. Unlike Paul, we usually try to identify who is at fault in a church conflict. But Paul did not ask, who started it? Neither does he ignore the problem, which apparently was known to everyone there in the church. As an apostle, Paul could have used his authority and commanded a resolution to the problem, but instead he appeals to them. That was Paul's style. It's reflected also in Philemon. He wrote to Philemon and said, Therefore, Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus. What a tender letter! And Paul knew that since Philemon was a Christian, he could appeal to him that way. And we ought to be able to do likewise instead of ordering people. Onesimus was the runaway slave of Philemon. But he had become a believer in Rome through Paul's influence while Paul was a prisoner. Now Paul was sending him back with this plea. If you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. And if he owes you anything, put it on my account. There is no hint of the problem between these two women and Philippi. They were not new believers, for Paul says they were his helpers in the gospel. They were servants of Christ. Were they wanting more attention in the church? Maybe so. 
Was one outdoing the other? Someone has suggested that what Paul wrote in chapter 2 was written, perhaps, with these women in mind. He wrote, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Now it's possible that verse 3 there targeted the problem, that they were doing things out of selfishness. But it is also possible that legalism, which resulted in self-righteousness, might have caused these sisters in Christ to view one another as competitors. I'm experienced in that sort of thing, and I can say that legalism does promote competition among Christians. A legalist is religious, and he wants others to know that he is, because that's his glory. He doesn't glory in Christ. He glories on what he does and how he lives. He sees himself in a race to win the title of most spiritual, and he's very disappointed if other people don't recognize him as spiritual. Well, whatever the problem of those women was, Paul enlists a brother to help. He's more than a brother, apparently. He is called by Paul a true comrade, or in the Revised Standard Version, a yoke fellow. Whoever this man is, Paul wants him to help those alienated women, and as a third party, he presumably can be impartial and be a mediator. A mediator comes between two parties with the objective of establishing peace and harmony. Christ our Lord is referred to as a mediator in 1 Timothy chapter 2. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for us all. Notice, it doesn't say, the man Jesus. It says, the man Christ Jesus. A mediator must not be unlike either party. And to accomplish salvation for us, Jesus needed to be a man, but he also needed to be God, and Christ is his divine name. He possessed the divine nature to qualify as God's representative, but he also took our human nature and could represent mankind as the mediator. Without a virgin birth, which brought God the Son into a human body, there could be no mediator between God and men. Now in Philippi, this yoke fellow of Paul did not get involved in the problem between Euodia and Syntyche. He didn't butt in, but now, as a result of Paul's letter, he needed to act, and Paul wanted him to act. Remember that this letter was read before the whole church meeting in Philippi. And think about those two women sitting in that meeting when their names come up in this epistle. Could the problem between these women have been doctrinal in nature? Hardly. Because throughout his epistles, the apostle always is bold in correcting doctrinal errors. Notice also the absence of law. Paul could have said, If they won't listen to advice and get together, 
then put them out of the church. But he didn't do that. In verse 2, he said, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. The Bible doesn't teach putting people out of the church because they lack harmony. And at the end of verse 3, he refers to his fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Everyone to whom he refers in verse 3, including the two women, were in the book of life. They had believed in Jesus Christ. But Paul may have added those final words as a reminder that although they are not united in the church, they are united in God's book of life. God has only one book of life, and we are all in it. Therefore, we ought to act like we are brothers and sisters in Christ down here. Now, this is a sobering thought when considered in the light of the context of human disagreement. Is your name written in the book of life? I hope it is. Which of Paul's epistles is the greatest? Martin Luther favored Galatians. It's an epistle that sets people free from the bondage of the law of Moses. I did not fully appreciate the Christian faith until I understood and began teaching Paul's letter to the Galatians. Our teaching tapes on Galatians will give you insight into the most critical problems which hindered first century Christians and will instruct you on how to please God apart from the law. For more Bible teaching, we invite our listeners in the Baton Rouge area to visit our Sunday morning Bible class. This 9.15 a.m. Sunday class is free and open to the public. Until next week, this is Nick Calavota reminding you that the word gospel means good news. Our address is Radio Bible Courses, Post Office Box 14916, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 70898. The website is rbcword.org.